Welcome to Vision of Zion. Today is May 16th, 2023. We're going to cover today an important chapter. This is the chapter of Isaiah number 11. Good morning, Sean. Morning, Craig. We just got done doing one last night, but we're just so excited and motivated that we're going to <laughs> push forward this morning. With uh, We're actually going to cover, cover a couple of chapters this morning. I'll probably leave them together uh, because 12 is only for uh, six verses long. This one is 16 verses long. So I think we'll cover them both. I've got the notes and I'm going to ask Sean to kick it off by explaining what Isaiah 11 is about. This chapter is an overview of an 18-month period of time from the standpoint of the righteous remnant who have gathered. Okay, well, let's begin with verse 1, which for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is an important verse, and it's discussed in Doctrine and Covenants section 113, which we'll probably come back to, or maybe you've got notes on that here. It looks like you do. So let me read the verse from the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'll probably follow up with, uh, after you describe it, with uh, Isaiah chapter 11, 1 in the King James Version. So, first reading, 11, 1 from the Dead Sea Scrolls. A shoot will come out of the stalk of Jesse, and a branch out of his roots will bear fruit. Hmm. Can I go ahead and read 11, 1 from the King James Version? Yeah. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. I think these very verses are very close, but I love how the in the Dead Sea Scrolls at the end it says will bear fruit, which is different, which it helps is. us with a clue there as to what's going on. In this verse we see three different people being described a shoot or a rod, a stalk or a stem of Jesse, a branch out of his roots. This stem or stalk of the tree is a passageway of which all essential nourishment of the tree must pass through. We know that none of us can pass back to heaven without the atonement of Christ has provided us use. Therefore, we can see that Christ is the stem or the trunk. Joseph Smith inquired of God to know with clarity who was the stem. In D.N.C. 113.1, who is the stem of Jesse spoken of in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth verses of the 11th chapter of Isaiah. Verily thus saith the Lord, it is Christ. Now going on to the rod out of the stem of Jesse. Now rod or shoot grows out of the stem or stalk of the tree. And DNC 113 again, verse 3 and 4. What is the rod spoken of in the first verse of the 11th chapter of Isaiah that should come out of the stem of Jesse? Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is the servant in the hands of Christ who is partly a descendant of Jesse as well as Ephraim or of the house of Joseph on whom there has been laid much power. The branch growing out of his roots will bear fruit. And in the 10th verse, we will discuss more in detail of who this branch is growing out of the roots. Okay, very good. Uh, yeah, that's very 
uh, interesting. And so pay attention as we read this now. Just take a note that Christ is referred to in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So let's read on. Verses 2 and 3. Yahweh's spirit will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. His delight will be in the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by the sight of his eyes, neither decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the humble of the heart. In these verses, we see the attributes and power Christ, the stem or stock of Jesse, is given to perform his duties. Verses 4 and 5. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Now in these verses, we are referring to the rod or shoot coming off the stem. If the stem is Christ and the branch must be a person, as referenced here earlier, as a servant preparing the way for Christ to return, the rod of his mouth indicates that Christ will give commands for the rod to kill the wicked. The words of righteousness and faithfulness are key words attached to see the identity of the servant in other chapters. We also have seen through the Dead Sea Scrolls that Yahweh of armies isn't the same as a servant. So as we think of this, a rod coming out of his mouth, which we referenced earlier as a rod, coming back to this second person um, that they're describing there. Okay. Verses 6 through 9. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play near a cobra's hole, and the child will put... Sorry. My page covered up a word. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. These descriptions of the predator and the prey lying together in peace will be a sign that God is now taking control of the earth again as he announces the rod and the branch growing out of the roots. The knowledge that God exists will be made known to every person no matter where they live. The water covering every part of the sea is symbolic of the knowledge of God, and his servant will penetrate every person on the earth. Let's cover verse 10. It will happen in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse, who stands as a banner of the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Joseph Smith inquired of the Lord as to the identity of the root in DNC 113.5. That is the root of Jesse spoken of in the 10th verse and the 11th chapter. Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a descendant of Jesse, as well as Joseph, to whom rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom for an ensign and for the gathering of my people in the last days. The root coming up from the ground is symbolic 
of scriptures and prophets of the past who have passed away. I think of this as coming up from the dirt. The Book of Mormon tells us that Joseph Smith is a descendant of Joseph in 2 Nephi 3, verses 6 and 15. Holding the keys of the kingdom is important. In D&C 115.19, we see that Joseph Smith held the keys of the gathering of the kingdom, which were given to him by Moses, who received them from Michael under the direction of Christ. Joseph Smith in his day did raise a standard for all nations. In my experience, I saw that Joseph Smith leading the 144,000, the 144,000 I saw were missionary couples with new scriptures in their hand. And as they bear fruit, this is a sign of bringing more back into the fold because Heavenly Father sees us as the fruit of the vineyard. And this is new fruit that has not come forth before, that's not associated with the main tree and so forth, bringing others that have not seen or understood Christianity or Christ. Verses 11 and 12. It will happen in that day that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Heavenly Father will set his hand to gather the remnant of his people when he has set up a banner or ensign for nations. This banner or ensign is the servant also known as Yahweh of armies. Setting up this banner is Heavenly Father's announcement to the world of who this individual is. He will then invite together for safety from the upcoming invasion of the king of Assyria. So in a way, in the, in the first part of this, as we talk about the rod and then we talk about the branch coming out, it's really an announcement of both of these individuals and their relationship there to bringing in the fold or gathering one last time. Another way to look at this is God will formally announce the shoot that will come out of the stock of Jesse and the branch of his roots who bears fruit. The bearing of the fruit symbolizes the bringing in of those who have not had the opportunity to know God. Okay. Verse 13. The envy also of Ephraim will depart, and those who persecute Judah will be cut off. Ephraim won't envy Judah, and Judah won't persecute Ephraim. The envy of, Ju the envy of Ephraim will depart shows that the once prideful people of the house of Ephraim are now brought low or humble. No one is envious of them. Those that persecute Judah will be cut off. This symbolizes those that persecute the land of Israel will be cut off from God's presence. Judah, symbolizing the people of Israel, will not <laughs> will not uh, persecute or fight against Ephraim, meaning America. Okay. Let's go to verse 14. They will fly down on the shoulders of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the children of the east. 
that will extend their power over Edom and Moab. And the children of Ammon will obey them. Ephraim and Judah will rise with power in God and fight off their oppressors. Verses 15 and 16. And these are the last verses of this chapter. Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. And with his scorching wind, he will wave his hand over the river and will split it into seven streams and cause men to march over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, like there was for Israel in the day that he came out of the land of Egypt. A miracle will happen on this day when God gives power to his remnant to rise up against their oppressors. This miracle will be like the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea, which allowed the Israelites to escape from Egypt. God will cause a great change to happen in the Pacific Ocean. Many of us in the ears have seen a continent rising up out of the Pacific in an area called the Ring of Fire. Some refer to this continent as the continent of Mu. With widespread changes to the Pacific Ocean, the righteous people seeking God from China and Russia will be able to cross to the promised land of America. That's quite a, quite a journey across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. <clears throat> We're going to get into some verses on this. <clears throat> well, there's a lot here, Sean. Uh, yeah, my first is. question is, uh, when it comes to... Let me get this straight here. When it comes to the stem and the root, the description that Joseph Smith provides in section 113, verses 4 and 6 respectively, when I used to read this, they sounded a lot like the same person because they're described very similarly. Uh, they both have power, but the keys, you're right, the keys are in the second uh, descendant. So my question is, are these are two separate people, correct? Yeah. Okay. So the in a way, if we could, what I've seen behind the scenes is the first person, the shoot coming out of the stock or the rod there actually has the keys of the gathering of the elite and holds the keys from generation to generation over all dispensations. I would like to, once again, I, I'm I'm truly amazed at some of these similarities. Uh, and you mentioned that Joseph Smith and the keys in verse six, That does that refer to Joseph Smith then directly? As prophesied by Lehi in 2 Nephi yeah. chapter two, I think it is. You did yeah. provide the verse for that. I think it's interesting, too, the symbolization of coming up out of the ground separate from the tree, which is very connected to uh, records and voices coming up out of the ground, which we can tie into other parts of Isaiah. We can also tie it back into the things that Joseph Smith saw with a hyphocephalus and this underground world where we die and then come back uh, through this resurrection process. And so I think they uh, call it voices from the dust, correct? Yeah, correct. So it's very, uh, it's, there's just so much symbolism when you get into it and this rising from the dust, a person from the past that has died, who's resurrected and brought up to a point and then leads. So 
what I was saying that I was going to start to read, and I'd like to read it now, is this uh, vision of Alfred Douglas Young from chapter 6, page 77 of the Refiner's Fire that I put together a couple of years ago. So this, again, is striking. And I, I just want to tell the audience, the listeners, that if there's anything I can you know, bear witness of throughout any of these podcasts, this is, for me, one of the highlights because this, when I read this, that spring morning when I came across this autobiographical account, when I read this next part, uh, what I felt was undeniable and really cemented my testimony of there, there was a restoration that occurred and that someone was given the keys. And I want to read you what Alfred Douglas Young saw in his vision in 1842. And just to set the stage, he had joined the church. He had just been made an elder, but he had never met the central church body in Nauvoo, Illinois, where they were at that time. And he had not joined up yet, although he did later. So he hadn't seen the the main figures of the restoration until, until after this vision occurred. But here's what he said. He's referring to the angel. He, meaning the angel, his guide, returned and said, Look, and he asked, What beholdest thou? I replied, I behold the servant of God. The angel said, Draw near unto the servant of God. As I did so, another person appeared, and it was made manifest to me that it was John the Baptist. I saw him, meaning John the Baptist, lay his hands on the head of the servant of God, Joseph Smith, and ordained him to the priesthood. I saw Oliver, Cowdery, and Martin Harris, but did not see John the Baptist ordain them. I afterwards learned that at the time I had this vision, they were both cut off from the church. Up to this time, I had not seen any of these men in body, nor heard much about them. In my vision, there appeared a space of time after the ordination of the servant of God by John the Baptist, in which nothing of importance occurred. So he's looking at events of uh, when Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were translating the Book of Mormon, they came across these passages about baptism, and they went out and they prayed about it when they were in or near the banks of, the, I think, the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's interesting, actually, that uh, we're talking about this today because uh, I just realized this morning, Sean, yesterday, May 15th, was the anniversary of this event occurring with John the Baptist, 1829. So pretty timely <laughs> that we're talking yeah. about this. Yeah. So yeah. isn't that cool? So so this is the, the but this next part is the part that hit me in a way that I can only try and explain or just bear witness of really. And again the angel said, Look, I looked and beheld the servant of God alone in a wilderness. And the angel, still standing by me, said, Draw near to the servant of God. As I did so, three men appeared, but with nothing unusual in their appearance. It was made manifest to me that they were Peter, James, and John, three of the Jewish apostles of our Savior. They laid their hands upon the head of Joseph Smith, Jr. Peter being the mouth, they ordained him to the Melchizedek priesthood. All the understanding I had previously obtained concerning these priesthoods was through the preaching of the elders on their authority. That the servant of God spoken of was the prophet Joseph Smith was not manifest to me until his last ordination when Peter called him by his name. Now, I just want to tell you, when I read that, I don't know if it's because he's an ancestor, I don't know why, but when I read those words, 
that he heard Peter speak the name of Joseph Smith. Um, I knew in my in my soul, like I've never ever known or had to doubt since, that Joseph Smith received the priesthood and priesthood keys from divine messengers. And I'm so grateful that I've never had to struggle from that time until now with that truth. It's been so easy for me to accept. And I'm just grateful that that's one of the things that just has been seared into my spirit as being true. And I love the fact that he didn't even know who he was until he heard wow. Peter call him by name. That just really has um, impressed me. And and at the end of his journal, I want to just share this too, if you don't mind. Um, no. He, if I can find it quickly. He just goes on to say, here, this is on page 121. He says, I feel to record a tribute of thanks, honor, and praise of God, my Heavenly Father, and to His Son, Jesus Christ, for the glorious things that have been revealed to me in these visions. I regret my inability to properly represent them. Does that sound familiar, Sean? Yeah. For want of a proper comprehension of language to express my ideas by as insofar as I am able. I desire to leave them on record as a testimony to my posterity and to the world of the goodness, power, and majesty of God and of the truth of the great Latter-day work as inaugurated by Joseph Smith Jr. for the final redemption of the earth. So this was written, as I've mentioned before, the one year or so before his death. He finally pulled out his pen and he wrote it all down. And I'm so grateful that he did because it did leave an impression, his testimony on his posterity, of which I am just one of many, I'm sure. And to the world, which is why I published the book, because this journal, this autobiographical account was just buried, uh, had not been brought to light. But his testimony is so pure and so relevant that uh, I wanted to make sure that the world knew about it. And that's why this little book was written. But anyway, Joseph Smith, uh, did receive the keys. And that's for every man, woman, and child to grapple with and what it means. Joseph Smith was told by the angel Moroni from the very beginning, just as a 17-year-old, that before he had done anything in the world of any consequence, and that was about to change, that his name would be known for good and for evil throughout the world. And we can see today that's absolutely true. And I'm grateful to stand on the side that can say the spirit is born witness to me that he was called to be a prophet and to inaugurate the restoration, which as president Nelson has told us. And as we can see from these scriptures, we are at the early stages of the restoration, not towards the completion. This is, this is a hard um, muscle to exercise. Uh, it hasn't all been done. It's uh President Nelson, who has spent 97, 98 years, and a good part of that is an active member of the church, and most a lot of his adult life as a general authority and apostle, uh, and being around uh, inspired men, priesthood holders, and women in the church, you know, he's pondered these things. And when he comes out and says, as a 94-year-old, uh, 
this this restoration that we're reading about that is in the scripture has just begun. It's exciting, first of all, and <clears throat> changes are should change should be a paradigm shift from what we've thought about the restoration up until this time. I think it's very interesting um, how uh, setting his hand to gather the people a second time. That's very telling of uh, the stages. We have a first stage and a second stage. And of course, that second stage is the gathering of the elect. That's seen in verse 11 through 12 there. A second time to recover his remnant of his people. Hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of times I had misconstrued as a young man, when the animals started getting along together and when they, you know, thinking, oh, now we're talking about the millennium and skipping into this. But this is actually a sign when we start to see this, that God has given power to his servants to go forth and act in his name at the midpoint. And I think that's something exciting to look forward to, to see the cooperation and the ease of these animals. And I think that the cooperation between them and the lack of opposition there is because they realize the priesthood is on the earth and that priesthood, the same priesthood as when Adam started the earth is there. And they find great peace in their minds as animals to turn back to their true selves, you know, who's within them. I found it interesting, Sean. You've got a child leading a calf, a young lion, and a fattened calf. Uh, I, you know, we've had newborns on our farm. Just yesterday, we took uh, a new mare and her filly to be bred. Uh, when sometimes when uh, a filly, when horses are bred and they deliver a a, a filly or a, a foal, anyway, a foal, male or a male or female horse that uh colt they uh they're they're it's a good time to breed them again right away so trying to load them up in a trailer (laughs) for the first time they've never traveled anywhere they're super tied to their mother they never leave the mother's side for for a long time they're just they're just right at the hip so we loaded the mother yesterday evening we loaded the um the filly and it's tough uh, they and they and then we had to separate them during the uh, breeding because you don't want the baby to get hurt by the stallion. So, so uh, I, I find it humorous today as I sit here thinking of for a child, let alone an adult, to lead these uh, young, uh, energetic, and sometimes fearful animals. But in this scene, what do we have? We have peace and tranquility. It's kind of that pasture yeah. image that you uh, talks about, and everything goes smooth. A child, uh, they would get pulled all over the place. So I, I really like that. that part. I've seen such today. little glimpses of this in my life, like a bighorn sheep walking up to the mirror of our vehicle when I was too afraid to see just different things throughout my life because my life has been so much a part of the animals and watching for these signs because uh, it really has been a big thing within me to see these. Well, let's go to verses 11 and 12. I just wanted to mention something here. It seems like this is the verse where it talks about the Lord's going to set his hand a second time to recover the remnant. And the remnant and the, and the gathering of the remnant is is uh, is in thirty five twenty one and elsewhere. But what I found interesting here was: is there like a parallel between uh, the beast and the second beast and the two servants? I mean, it just seems like there's this uh, uh, there's always this equal and opposite going on. Well, it's in interesting days. at the time that these are announced to the world, and we start to see these things that the 
first beast power, and the second beast is is getting ready to devour the Ephraimites, you know, in whatever lands that they are in, you know, mating ready to come in at the same time. At the same time, he hasn't completely come in. Um, we have a few months because now that this has been announced and this priesthood and everything is on the mouthpiece there, the servant will announce and ask the people to gather in safely. And of course, many people kind of balk at this idea. It's a term from workhorses, but they scoff would be another word because the world's going to turn around and look at all the things that I built with my hands. I can't leave it. Um, I can't imagine this happening, that I would need to go and gather safe. Can't leave all these personal things that I built up here. And so they don't come at that point, which is sad, but we welcome them in. We'll see that in, I believe, chapter three. You know, with open arms, we accept them into these gathering areas and try to help them heal and trust in God completely. I'd like to go to these last two verses of Isaiah 11, 15 and 16. And I want to ask you if this, if what I'm about to read from section 133 of the Doctrine and Covenants is the same thing you're describing going on in the Pacific Ocean, the Ring of Fire, uh, is a big feature in Scripture. So let's just see if this is the same thing. Starting with verse 26. And they who are in the north country shall come in remembrance before the Lord, and the prophets shall hear his voice, and shall no longer stay themselves. And they shall smite the rocks, and the ice shall flow down at their presence, midst of the great deep. Their enemies shall become a prey unto them. And in the barren deserts there shall come forth pools of living water, and the parched ground shall no longer be a thirsty land. So is this the highway that we're it's talking the same about? same thing, yeah. Um, you know, and in these scenes, I see the ten tribes that have been hidden from us coming forth always comes forth first in all these, the very righteous remnant. And then trailing will be the people from Assyria, meaning Russia. Everybody has that opportunity. But as this rises up, it almost appears as there's just a river left and across this river, uh, probably a great river like the Mississippi or Moses had set up where they walk on dry land after this has risen up. Um, there's quite a few ancient stories about the continent of Mu and the landmass that's underneath there. And the fact that it's very interesting, the ring of fire kind of surrounds and everything else, that there's some disturbing factor there, which could cause us, from that perspective, to rise up. You know, referring to these uh, everlasting hills, I want to keep reading from DNC 133. This is verse 30. And they shall bring forth their rich treasures unto the children of Ephraim, my servants. Verse 31, and the boundaries of the everlasting hills shall tremble at their presence, and there shall they fall down and be crowned with glory, even in Zion, by the hands of the servants of the Lord, even the children of Ephraim, and they shall be filled with songs of everlasting joy. So tell me if I'm wrong, but from what I've heard, Sean, this ring of fire that you described, uh, which is the volcanic uh, activity Right. active plate i guess in the, that that surrounds the pacific ocean uh and i've also heard <clears throat> in in firesides that i've gone to that the everlasting hills refers to this ring of fire that there's a a hill a ridge of hill mountains that goes you know from alaska down into united states down through the western border of south america and then into the water and across and back up its surfaces in asia and this big circle, if you were to drain the water from the Pacific Ocean, you'd see a very de clear delineation of this these everlasting hills, one circle. Is this what the everlasting hills is referring to, in your opinion? In my opinion, yeah. 
Uh, I mean, we look at Chile and the height of the mountains there and everything. I mean, they're some of the highest in the world. Uh, you know, they train on those to go to Mount Everest and so forth. And some of the most active places are along Chile where we have volcanoes and uh, active uh, earthquakes all the time. Uh, and then, you know, down our coast. So it shows them coming. This is that highway, right? The highway yeah. is cast up out of the midst of the great deep. That would be the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And then the enemies, as we read in the prior chapter, are taken care of. There is <clears throat> the desert blossoms as the rose. Water is, we talked about water being here in places like the Great Basin in Utah and uh, Nevada, for example, they're yeah. bringing treasures to Ephraim. This kind of sounds like this: uh, the end of the envy of Ephraim is going to go away because they're bringing treasures to them. So I find a parallel here with Isaiah 11. You're, and, yeah, very strong. And then they fall down and are crowned with glory uh, at the hands of the servants. So maybe this is. Anyway, I see a lot of parallels here, and I, that's why I wanted to refer people to the Doctrine and Covenants section 133. Yeah, it's very powerful to see this coming forth and them joining us and joining in our power to believe in God, and that just makes everything stronger in the priesthood and the glory of the earth and the power of the priesthood to push off the unrighteous. It's just kind of a huge leap for Earth and mankind. This again reminds me of if we were to go back and look at the book of Moses and read about Enoch and the power he had and how the Lord made a continent or land mass rise up out of the ocean. I yeah. mean, the parallels are striking. The the servant Enoch, I think the servant or servants in the latter days at the right time are going to parallel this these events that we see in the book of Moses. Okay, I think we should go ahead and cover chapter 12, Sean, since yeah. it is a short chapter with six verses. And what is this chapter about? This chapter is a viewpoint from within the inner valleys as they rejoice and bask in God's love. All right, verse 1. In that day you will say, I will give thanks to you, Yahweh, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you comfort me. The midpoint of the tribulation has passed, and the servant has been empowered to drive back the oppressors. The people are so grateful for the comfort and protection that God has given them. Verses 2 and 3, Behold, God, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for Yah, Yahweh is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water out of the wells of salvation. The people are overjoyed with their newfound trust in God. In their hearts, they sing praises to God. They, uh, the wells of salvation sound similar to me to drinking from the living waters, which strengthens one and helps you to have ever, an everlasting commitment to things. It's just very powerful. I'll come back to that in a minute. Verses 4 through 6. In that day you will say, Give thanks to Yahweh, call on his name, declare his doings among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing to Yahweh, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known in all the earth, 
cry aloud and shout, you inhabitant of the daughter of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is great among you. Righteous remnant have gathered, rejoice in song as they feel him with them every hour. They work hard to teach and envelop those that continue to come into the inner valleys with love. They are missionaries helping the newcomers cast aside their fears and trust God in a deeper way. So one question I have is, is maybe this is not the point in time when it happens, but we see this term living waters. You used the term a minute ago. And I'm thinking back on, it was probably uh, John Pontius's book, Visions of Glory, where he talks about water, living water coming out or emanating out of the land of Zion. And then kind of, as it goes from there, it kind of waters other areas on the continent and bringing this incredible type of life to the earth. Um, yeah. Is this describing that or is this, you know, a precursor to that? I believe it's describing that because I've seen as um, the servant goes out leading the armies to take back this nation that drive down their staff or even bringing people and they drive down their staff and water spews forth like Moses did as he led the Israelites out. And from this, He's inviting the water from way, way deep in the earth that has not seen the light of day for thousands and thousands of years to spring forth now in a deep vision that I had of living waters and stuff that it contained around 72 different minerals, which were all things that protected our bodies, strengthened our bodies, strengthened our joints, and helped us provide more clarity like purging out the junk that was in our veins and so forth so that we could clearly hear God and have bodies that were strengthened and fortified to do God's work. It was a very special process, but as you've people go through trials of their faith and building of faith to become more like God, then they come to the stage where it's very important that they would want or receive living water to continue their missions and to continue to go forth. So a question I have is, we know the earth is transitioning from a telestial level to a terrestrial level, which it will remain at for a thousand year period. Are these things occurring while we're in transition? Are we still in a telestial state or are we in completely in a terrestrial state? No, we're in a transition between the two. And it's the power is <clears throat> building and building. It's just gradually, but as the righteous awaken more, it continues to grow and envelop more and more. And as this like seed grows and we start to gather in things, it just affects the earth so much because we, in fact, our bodies are made of particles of this earth and tied to this earth. And so she begins to rejoice. And so it's kind of a small explosion uh, depending on what time you're looking at, you know, in seven years is a relatively narrow time in the thousands of years of the existence of the church. It's almost like an explosion. But yet to us who are living here, it doesn't seem like an explosion of righteousness and so forth. But um, it, it's a gradual thing. And then when we reach a certain level, then we see these things that happen in one day. Just like that, just like in the Book of Mormon and stuff. But when we are, when the God, Heavenly Father's rescued all that He can rescue, bring in all the things He can, and that's when we see this one day type thing happen, just like that. 
So it does sound a lot like, you know, visions of glory where it seemed like a gradual process as people became more refined, more reliant upon the Lord, as they became reliant upon the Lord, <clears throat> their dietary habits changed, their ability to heal and be healed by the power of the priesthood or by the spirit. It seems to get easier. And uh, it's just, a, I guess, a purification, maybe a sanctification process that we're witnessing. Many of us, as we walk along a path and trying to become more like Christ and everything, we have these aha moments where all of a sudden we realize, oh my gosh, I've reached it. I've actually achieved this. I've drawn closer and I've reached this next level. And I love these aha moments because not everybody will walk all the way, just like in Visions of Glory, that a certain level they'll be translated and taken right there. They don't have to walk the rest of the distance. One thing I learned from the Dead Sea Scroll translations is I think I had a misunderstanding about what it means when his arm is stretched out still. Uh, I thought he was reaching an arm out to, um, to you know, bring people in which uh, his anger is still, once the Lord heats up in his anger, it doesn't go away. Uh, certainly the, the ability to repent is going to be ever present, but you see this change here where suddenly the anger is gone. And we see that in the book of, I think, Ezekiel says it's going to be a tough uh, cleansing process like it was in the days of old. But now, after that anger has passed and the cleansing has occurred, things are going to get back to uh, a wonderful level. And that's the level that we all want to be and at. And as we find this peace in the inner valleys with the righteous and his hand has stayed there. So you have the right hand of the left hand, the right hand taking care of wickedness. But in chapter 13, is uh, all about addressing the wicked still. So we have this wonderful, righteous group. And trying them, and 13, it's like, now we're going to drive back all the wicked. It's kind of like the Lord's Day of Vengeance now. And he is just not going to let up on them until they are all gone. Or they've changed their hearts. Right. Well, so. that's, that's what a terrestrial kingdom is. It's a, level, it's a leveling up. And the earth is going to be reprieved of its suffering from the wickedness that has occurred. Well, I think that does it for today, Isaiah chapters 11 and 12. We look forward Thank to you. doing, in the near future, Isaiah chapter 13. Sounds great. Thank you, Craig. All Have right. a good day. Thanks, everybody. You too. Thanks, everybody, for listening.